Well, if you have your Bible today, and I hope you do, would you please take it and open to, uh, let's do 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've been in this series we've called Back to the Basics, and the premise of the series is that the Christian life, the life of faith, is supposed to be a life of growth and development. There's a sense in which we, we all start as spiritual infants, and, uh, and we need the basics. We need milk. That's actually a phrase the writer of Hebrew uses. We've been, we've been preaching out of Hebrews, chapter the end of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6, and, and he says, uh, you need milk, not solid food. While those of us who start as spiritual infants, we do start with milk. But the idea is that we wouldn't stay there, that we wouldn't constantly be bottle-fed, but that, but that over time, through the Spirit's work in our lives, we would grow and we'd move from, you know, from bottles to sippy cups, so to speak, that, that we continue to grow in, in, in our faith and, and uh, become you know, spiritual children and then spiritual young adults to the, to the point where we become spiritual parents and we turn around and, and we help others on their growth process from spiritual milk to spiritual meat. And so as the writer of Hebrews talks about it, he says, um, you should have moved by now beyond spiritual milk. Not that milk is bad. It's, it's good, especially for new believers. But as, as you grow, you should move on, but, but you're stuck. And, uh, and so, you know, we've, we've understood the intention of the writer of Hebrews uh, was to say that, that sometimes we need to move beyond, uh, but that for those who are new believers, and we have a number of new believers in our body, um, we should we should make sure that we understand the fundamentals, the basics of the Christian faith. So we've been spending some time there for the sake of our new believers and, and even for the sake of, of our, you know, we believers who um, perhaps are more mature, kind of uh, going back and, and refreshing. And so we've looked at some of the basics of the faith that the writer of Hebrews talks about. Let's see how much we remember. We started this series and we were all watching online, and, and now some of us are online and some of us are in person. So let's see how we're holding together. He talks about six basics of the Christian faith. Do you remember the first one? Okay, I heard, I heard it in the room here. Repentance from acts that lead to death. And so we talked about the, the sense that all of us, um, we, we tend to have thoughts and we say words and, and we, you know, we commit actions, we commit deeds that lead us away from God, that lead us away from God's best for us. And, and, and most significantly, they lead us towards death. And so we said we repent, we turn away from those, and we turn back towards God because that's the direction of life. He talked about repentance from acts that leads to death. What was the second one? You may remember we had a lightsaber and a birthday cake and an athlete. We were talking about faith in God. Okay, we said faith in God is believing that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do, which in this case means he will save us from our sins. He will help us to continually turn back towards Jesus Christ. And then we, we took the next two and we kind of switched up the order a little bit. Um, but the writer of Hebrews talks about instructions about cleansing rites, which we said translates in our language into baptism. And baptism, Pastor Greg taught us, is a, a visible demonstration that I've trusted in Jesus to save me from death. Baptism is me saying that I'm striving to live my life with Jesus. 
because I've already died with Jesus. And I'm looking forward to the day when I get to spend eternity with Jesus. And then we talked about the laying on of hands. And we said that's about the work of the Holy Spirit among the people of God. We lay hands on new believers to, uh, you know, to encourage the life of the Spirit, to invite the Spirit to continue to indwell them and have His way with them. We, we lay hands on believers who are being directed by the Spirit of God into specific ministry, whether it's ministry in the church or whether it's some kind of vocational call to ministry uh, we confirm what the Spirit is doing by the laying on of hands. And, and so what we want to do today is we want to wrap up this series by focusing on the last two things, which is a lot to bite off, but we're going to do our best. He talks about the, the fundamentals of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Just why you all came to church today for a great uplifting message about eternal judgment, right? Okay. Um, so these are hefty theological doctrines, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. I mean, these, these have substance to them. I mean, there's significant books of the Bible that dedicate significant time to these topics, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And so what we do today is, is kind of like scratching the surface. If you're a new believer here, please know that there's a whole lot more to these two doctrines than we're going to touch on today. And if you're not a new believer, if you are a spiritual parent or a spiritual young adult, um, know up front that you've probably heard more on these things. And just allow these to be a refresher of the things that you've already learned and already know about the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. So we're going to start today with the resurrection of the dead. And we're going to start in First Thessalonians chapter 4. If you haven't found that yet, I'll give you another minute. And let me tell you about this book, First Thessalonians. It's actually, there's two of them, First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. Paul wrote these letters to a church in the city of Thessalonica. So he wrote them to the people who lived there. They were called Thessalonians. And one of the main themes of both of these letters is, seems to be that there was some misunderstandings in their church, in their city, among the believers there about what was going to happen at the end of days. And so Paul writes to, to redirect them, to, to, to educate them, to re-educate them, to give them a Christian perspective on what is going to happen at the end of days. And, and what I love about what he does, and we're going to see it in today's passage, but it's really throughout the two books, I love that Paul doesn't come in as he does in other letters. He doesn't scold them. He's not heavy-handed. You don't get the sense that you've just been lectured by dad. But instead, what Paul does, it's more like he wraps his arm around them. He calls them brothers and sisters. And he just kind of educates them, redirects them in a very brotherly way, a very kind way, not chastising. He helps to untwist some things they've got twisted up. And so you'll, you'll hear that today as we read some from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them. Just real quick, if you're a new believer especially, maybe you've heard this word rapture, uh, and, and we'll unpack that maybe a little bit today, but, but this is where we get the word rapture. In the Latin translation, that phrase, caught up together, is the Latin word rapturo. So you can hear it, right? Rapture. This is, this is what we talk about, this sense that, that the dead and the living will be caught up into the air when Jesus returns. We who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul teaches us some significant things about the resurrection of the dead, also sometimes called the rapture in this passage. Let's just look at those real quickly. First of all, he teaches that the resurrection of the dead is intended to bring hope not anxiety. The resurrection of the dead is intended to give us hope, not to make us anxious or fearful. May 8th, 1998 was one of the worst nights of sleep I'd ever gotten up to that point in my life. That's because um, May 9th, 1998 was a very significant day in my life. You see, it was on that day that I would be entering into a lifelong commitment with my bride-to-be. Sarah and I were to be married on May 9th, 1998, and, and I, I, I think I thought I knew more about marriage than I actually did, but I understood that I didn't know everything about marriage, and so I was excited, and I was nervous, and you know, it was like a, a kid before Christmas Eve on steroids. Like, I just couldn't sleep because I was so excited about what was coming the next day. That was, was one of the reasons I couldn't sleep. But the other reason I couldn't sleep is because I was scared. I was anxious I had this sense, and this will tell you all kinds of weird things about my psyche, but I had this sense that on May 8th, in the middle of the night, the rapture was going to happen. And so I spent the night praying, dear God, I've waited my whole life to be married and to experience the joy of marriage. Why don't you hold the rapture a day? If you want to come on the evening of May 9th, that'll be fine, but let's not do it on May 8th. Um, I don't know, am I the only one who's ever had a thought process like that or, or prayed a prayer like that? Apparently, at least in this room, if you're waving your hand online, thank you, I don't see it, but you can send me an email and tell me about it. <laughs> Paul is pretty clear here, though, and once he writes in 1 Thessalonians that, that the resurrection of the dead, the, the, the rapture, the context in which he talks about it here, is it something that ought to make us anxious or fearful? But it's something that ought to give us hope. Hope, uh, he talks specifically as we grieve the death of a loved one. We still grieve, but we grieve with hope because of the coming resurrection. It ought to give us hope as we endure hard times. It, it ought to give us hope as we see our, our bodies decay and abilities that we once had leave us, no matter how hard we try to retain them. It, it ought to give us hope as we watch society turn further and further from Jesus. Instead of anxiety or anger or fear or hopelessness, the resurrection of the dead ultimately ought to bring us hope that this isn't all there is. 
that for the follower of Jesus Christ, there's a hope of something considerably, significantly greater when this is all done. Notice what else he says about the resurrection. Our hope is based on the resurrection of Jesus. We have hope not just in some idea or some philosophical argument or, or theory. Our hope is rooted in the historical act, fact, of Jesus Christ's resurrection. Because God raised Jesus from the dead, I can be confident that he's going to do the same for those who trust Jesus for salvation. Now, here's what we need to understand about salvation. Salvation. Our salvation isn't just salvation from sin. It's not just salvation for heaven, but it's salvation from sin and all of its effects. And the greatest effect of sin is death. Death didn't enter the world until sin did. And so when we trust Jesus for our salvation, we are trusting him to deal on our behalf to deal with death, with, with our death. That's why Paul writes here, God will bring from the dead with Jesus those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. So, I, I, I mean, this is how I picture it. I don't know if this is what Paul intended, but this is how I picture it. I picture that death is a giant, and I'll use contemporary terms here, contemporary events, death is a giant murder hornet just trying to sting us to death. You with me? You tracking with me? Hopefully you've never seen a murder hornet other than on Facebook and a video where a praying mantis ate one or whatever you saw, okay? But I, I picture death as this giant murder hornet trying to get to each of us, trying to kill us, trying to choke everything out of us that God has given us. But for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, for those of us who have committed our lives to him and asked him to be our Lord and Savior, between us and the giant murder hornet stands Jesus Christ, stands the risen Lord and Savior. And so that murder hornet, try as it may, it can't get to us. Its little stinger can't touch us, which is why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's like, where, oh, death is your victory, where, oh, death is your sting. Jesus stands between us and death so that we cannot die. Now, we still have to deal with the fact that in this life, we, we do live in a fallen world. And, and so death... Although it doesn't get the final word, we all still taste it. And especially in our scientific age, we, we can understand that, that eventually this earth takes a toll on our bodies. All of us, our bodies will stop working and we will die. Scientifically speaking, we will die. We will live no more. But for the follower of Jesus Christ, it's not the murder hornet that has done it. It's not death. Paul says, we're sleeping. Theologically speaking, our bodies have stopped, but we haven't died. We haven't tasted of death. We're merely asleep. So for the believer, death has been de-stingered, if you will, and actually turned into sleep. And we can be confident of that because this is what happened with Jesus. They thought he was dead, but on the third day, they found out he wasn't. God had brought him back from the grave. And so those of us who die in a relationship with him can be confident that God will do the same for us. Paul continues to teach us about the resurrection of the dead. He says, the dead in Christ get first priority. The dead in Christ get first priority. It's interesting that, that Paul is very specific here, that those who have fallen asleep 
in Christ. They had a relationship with Jesus Christ when they died, as we describe it, are actually the first ones to be resurrected. Actually, he writes it and he says, we who are still alive, who were left until the coming of the Lord. I don't, I don't know if Paul thought that he would be alive at the resurrection or if in the Spirit's wisdom, Paul writes us in such a way that all of us would assume that we'll be alive until the Lord comes. But Paul says the dead in Christ, those who have gone on before us, who died in a relationship with Jesus Christ, they're the first ones who will rise. He continues in verse 16, and he says the resurrection will be obvious and bodily. Again, listen to verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down with heaven, from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So there is no missing this event, right? It, there's not going to be questions about, did the rapture happen and I was left out? Like, imagine the scene. The risen, glorified Christ is hovering midair. There's a loud, audible, distinguishable, distinguishable voice, presumably of the archangel, and there's a trumpet call. And then things start flying through the air. I mean, you are not going to miss the resurrection. This thing is going to be the pinnacle. It's going to be the apex. The, the, the attention of everyone is going to be on that. And like we said, Paul emphasizes the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Well, how do you think we'll know that that's what's happening? Okay, I don't think we need to get too graphic, but we all understand what happens to a body after death, right? After a while, it doesn't resemble much of a body anymore. Well, how are we going to know that that stuff flying through the air is dead bodies? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I don't exactly know what it's going to look like, but we're going to be able to recognize as believers who have already died in Christ, as they receive their new bodies, we're going to be able to recognize that those are people and those are bodies and maybe those are my people. And maybe that's my loved one if we're still alive when this happens. You see, the, the body is significant. Some people like to believe this is important, Christians. This is important that we do not think like this. Some people like to think that when we die, we become disembodied spirits. You've heard people say it. Oh, my grandpa, he, he just came to me in the night and, and he, he encouraged me to be strong. Eh, not good theology. We don't become disembodied spirits. We don't become Casper the friendly ghost. We also don't become angels who, who get our wings, you know, every time a bell rings. Um, we, don't, we don't sit on clouds and play harps. That's not what happens for eternity. That's not what happens after death for anybody, but especially not for the followers of Christ. The body is not some kind of evil skin, evil, evil shell that we shed so that we can go receive something perfect. God designed us with bodies in his image, and that's crucial to God's desire for eternity. We will receive new bodies, and, and, and our, that body, that perfected body, is integral to the way 
God designs us to spend eternity. And so as we talk about the resurrection of the dead, we're talking about a bodily resurrection where we receive a new body and it'll be obvious. Notice what else Paul says. There's a lot that we don't know. This is in verse 17. There's a lot that we don't know, but we know what matters most. Notice again how Paul writes verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, we read that, and maybe, maybe it's not confusing. Maybe, maybe it just seems clear what it means. But let me ask you this. What happens after we meet Jesus in the sky? Whether we're the dead in Christ or those who are still living, when he returns, what happens after we rise to meet Jesus in the air? Do you know? Nobody really knows. Scripture doesn't make that clear. There's a lot that Scripture doesn't tell us. But it's interesting as you read these verses, if you read through ears of people who lived in Thessalonica at the time that they received this letter from Paul, you're going, oh, I get it. We're going to meet Jesus in the air and we're going to usher him back down to earth. Now you're saying, I don't see that in here, Pastor Earl. I know you don't. I know you don't. The the word that Paul uses here for meet the Lord in the air is a very specific word that in their culture meant exactly what I just said. It's people who meet a dignitary, an agreed upon distance before their destination, and then usher that dignitary to their destination. We actually see it in other places in scripture. Matthew 25, for example, is the parable, the, the parable of the ten virgins. You may remember that. Five kept their lamp burning and five didn't. And so as the, as the parable ends, the five bridesmaids, if you will, that kept their, their wick trimmed and their, their oil filled with lamp, they were ready. And so as the bridegroom came, they went and they met the bridegroom and then they escorted him to the wedding banquet. The same word, meet. We see it also in Acts when Paul makes his journey to Rome. The church at Rome sent a delegation of believers out some distance before Paul's final destination. They met him there. He was encouraged, and then they traveled together to Paul's final destination in the city of Rome. And so we have this sense that perhaps, maybe the resurrection described here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is a deal where the dead in Christ rise, get their new body. Those who are still living rise, get their new bodies. And then we escort Jesus back to earth for the next step of the plan. But we don't know that. Paul doesn't say that specifically. The scripture doesn't give us every detail in what happens at the end of days. And, And there's a reason for that, I think. That's because the Holy Spirit knows that we crave details. And when we have our answers... We look to those as God. And Scripture says, no. No, there's going to be blanks because the details aren't your God. God is your God. What matters most is what Paul writes here. We will be with the Lord forever. This is always the point of biblical prophecy, especially prophecy about the end of days. We will be with the Lord forever. This has been God's design from the beginning. We trace this through the Old Testament into the New Testament that God's desire is to be among his people. They will be my people, he says time and time again in the Old Testament, and I will be their God. It's how the book of Revelation ends. God's dwelling place is among man. He is with them. 
We don't know everything about what happens at the end of days, but we know the most important thing, and that's that we'll be with God. Forever we'll be with the Lord. And so Paul ends this teaching on the resurrection of the dead, and he says, encourage one another with these things. This crucial, crucial doctrine leads us to encourage one another. It's not about figuring out who's who and what's what and what's happening when. It's not about timelines and, and secret identities. The point of this doctrine is that we would be encouraged. It's not some dusty old doctrine that has no real bearing on my life. Instead, knowing that Jesus Christ is going to return and that the dead in Christ will rise to meet him and receive a new body, that gives me, that ought to give us great encouragement. Encouragement that when we say goodbye to a loved one who has died as a Christian, that we're really saying, see you later. We'll see you again. We'll see you in the air. The pain, the very real pain and the very real grief and absence and loss that we experience as we mourn their passing will be far surpassed by that moment whenever it is when Christ returns and we all rise. The joy, the exhilaration of that moment takes away all of our grief, all of our pain. That, that ought to give us hope. We ought to have hope that we can stand firm during persecution, during oppression, during mistreatment, during abuse, because whatever anybody would do to my body now, so be it. They can ruin my body now. They can destroy my body now. But I've got a new one on order. It's coming, baby, and it's going to look good. It ought to give us encouragement that the struggles I have in this earthly body, and don't we all have struggles? My lifelong struggle has been with obesity. It doesn't, I just, I struggle with that day in and day out. And as I look across this room and as, as I think about those watching online and down in the small gym, we all have struggles. Life has taken its toll on our bodies. We were, we were born with deformities. Dementia is setting in and we can't remember things and we can't do things the way that we used to. We ought to have hope that in the midst of everything this earth does to our bodies, every struggle we have with this physical body, while it may dominate our perspective now, one day it'll all be set to rights. The idea, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead produces in us peace in the midst of grief, endurance in the midst of suffering, patience in the midst of hardship, and encouragement when we need it most. Well, the writer of Hebrews talks about two fundamentals here. He talks about the resurrection of the dead, and he talks about eternal judgment. Let's move on and look at eternal judgment. When it, when it comes to eternal judgment, the scripture seems to speak of at least two different judgments, one for believers and one for unbelievers. So what we're going to do is, is uh, we're going to flip to the back of your notes page if you have that. Um, we're just going to do a real quick comparative study on the two of those. Now these both, the, the judgment of, of believers and judgment of unbelievers, are mentioned in multiple scripture passages throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. But what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what seems to be a primary text for both of them uh, to see real quickly what we can learn. Again, we're skimming the surface here uh, to get our bearings. So let's talk first about the judgment of believers. The primary text for that one 
is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen as I read these verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away, away from the Lord. He's, he's kind of pointing back to what we just talked about, the resurrection of the dead, right? When we die and leave this body, we'll be present with the Lord. And at the end, we get a new body. And so we ought to be encouraged and confident, he says. Verse 7, for we live by faith, not by sight. As we struggle day in and day out with the, the, the shortcomings and the handicaps of, of this body, <laughs> we don't assume that what we see and experience now is, has the final say. We trust God to be good to his word. Verse 8, we are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So the key text is uh, 2 Corinthians, really, uh, verse 10. Um, you know, but we just read the passage 6 through 10 in chapter 5. So when is this going to happen? Um, presumably following the resurrection we just talked about from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That seems to be the timeline. But again, remember the goal of biblical prophecy isn't to fill in timelines. It's to remember the ultimate thing that will be with God. Where is it going to happen? Paul talks in these verses about, the, in verse 10, about the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 10, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The Greek word that he uses here for judgment seat, perhaps you've heard it before, is the word bema, B-E-M-A, pronounced bema. So where does this judgment happen? It happens at the Bema. Now that word doesn't mean anything to us, but for the church at Corinth, it would have meant something. They knew what a Bema was because they had one in their market. We're actually going to put a picture of it. This is as it is today, as, as archaeologists have worked to recover it and kind of restore it. You can see it's, a, it's an elevated platform, if you will, in the middle of their, um, their market. We could think in terms of like the you know, the Civic Plaza, downtown Elkhart, that kind of place where people would gather. Uh, it's elevated platform, about seven and a half feet off the ground. And two significant things would happen here at the Bema. First of all, the local magistrate or governing authority would make decisions and, and offer rulings from atop the Bema. He would walk up and stand up there, you know, so the people could hear him and he was elevated and, and uh, he, would, he would give his decisions. The second significant thing that happened at, at the Bema was that the Olympic athletes would receive their rewards. And so if they had you, you know, finished and won, and if they had done it according to the rules, they had competed fairly, then it was at the Bema that they would receive their reward. So in that sense, we can think of it maybe like the, you know, the three-tiered uh, platform that we see these days at the Olympics. So where's, where's this judgment of believers going to happen? At the Bema. We don't know what that looks like. We don't know where it is. It's not clear, but that's what it's called. So what's being judged here at the judgment seat of Christ or at this judgment of believers? Paul says it pretty clearly here in verse 10, right? He says, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body. So what's being judged here at the Bema Seat Judgment is our deeds in this life. Now, believers, we're talking about believers here. 
Okay, so this is important to understand. This is not a judgment about who gets into heaven and who goes, goes to hell. That is not happening at the Bema seat of Christ, at this judgment seat that Paul talks about. Everyone who appears here for judgment, they're already a shoe in for heaven because they've already trusted in Christ's death and resurrection to deal with their sin. That's a done deal. It's solved. Do understand that that's the only story for salvation. See, a lot of people think if I, and, and a lot of Christians slip into thinking this, it's so easy to do. If I do more good things than I do bad, then I'll definitely get my ticket punched to heaven. As long as my life is, you know, overall more good than it is evil, then I'm set. That is not the message of Scripture ever. The only way we get into heaven is because we trust the death of Jesus Christ to deal with our sin. And we submit to his lordship in this life. So what happens here at the Bema seat is not about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. It's about those who go into heaven, what our eternal reward will be. And again, scripture doesn't fill in all the blanks here. We could say with certainty it's not about salvation, it's about reward. But we don't know what that looks like. We don't know what the scale is. We don't know what the rewards are. We just have a sense that at the end of time, God will look at those of us who have been believers. Somehow our life will be examined and the good things that we have done will survive and we'll take them with us into eternity, Scripture seems to say. And the things that didn't please God, or, or Paul talks in other places, uh, 1 Corinthians, that are like wood or, or straw or, or hay or stubble, they'll be, they'll be burned up. That's, that's really about all we know. So anyone who stands before the judgment seat of Christ, before the Bema, is not being judged for entrance into heaven, but for the rewards it will take with us into heaven. Let's flip the page and look at the judgment of unbelievers. The key text for this is all the way at the back of your Bible. Unless you have maps and a concordance, you can probably turn to the, the last page and then go a couple pages to your left. Revelation chapter 20. Listen to what it says, verses 11 through 15. This is John writing. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So when does this judgment happen? At the very end of days. As a matter of fact, this is like the last thing to happen before the new heaven and the new earth are revealed. That's where we'll spend eternity, the new heaven and new earth. This is the last thing to happen before that happens. Where does this judgment happen? At the great white throne. At the great, great white throne. Now, there's a ton of scripture allusions happening here in Revelation 20. I wish we had time to dig into them, but we don't today. So we're not exactly sure what's going on other than that, that John, led by the Spirit, is drawing from Ezekiel and Daniel and, and other places in the Old Testament. 
we just know that this is some kind of bigger vision than we can imagine. I mean, look what he says. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. There was no place for them. So wherever this happens, it's going to be so grand, so incredibly large and expansive that earth as we know it, the atmosphere, outer space, I don't know, it can't contain what happens. It's absolutely incredible. It's so intense. Jesus is so large and so glorious that nothing in all of creation can contain what happens here. So let's talk about what's being judged here at the great white throne judgment. This is all about eternal destiny. While the Bema seat that we just talked about is not about who goes to heaven and hell, the great white throne judgment is all about who will end up for eternity in God's presence and who will end up for eternity separated from God. But it's not about deeds. The Bema seat, the first one we talked about, is about the deeds done in the body. The great white throne judgment is only about one deed done in the body. Did this person choose to receive the death of Jesus Christ as a substitution for their punishment? You see, when you do that, when you confess that you're a sinner and that you need Jesus Christ, your name is written in the book of life. And you'll notice it was the book of life that mattered in this judgment scene. What's being judged here is a decision that each individual made before they breathed their last? Did they choose that Jesus would be their Lord? Did they live in such a way um, or not? So let's wrap up in the next couple minutes asking this question. How do these doctrines impact our lives? We've already discussed some of this, so we're just going to move through it rather quickly. Uh, I want to suggest four ways in which these doctrines ought to make a difference. Because again, the goal isn't just to learn things. The goal isn't to add to our knowledge. The goal is to be made in the image of Jesus Christ. So first of all, let's talk about hope. As Paul said in the first passage we read today, the resurrection of the dead gives us hope that at the end of this life, we haven't come to the end, that there's more, that, that yes, death from this life is a departure, but it's a departure followed, followed by something much greater. The resurrection of the dead and even the judgments ought to give us hope that in the end, God has the final say. How else do they impact our lives? They, they ought to produce in us endurance. They ought to produce in us endurance. Specifically, think about the Bama judgment seat, brothers and sisters. We'll end up there someday. Regardless of what you face now, regardless of how difficult it is to live in a way that's pleasing to God, remember you will one day stand before the Bama seat and you'll be rewarded for the things you've done in this body. And so it's difficult now and you want to pack up and go home. You want to quit. You want to go underground. You want to go silent. Don't do it. Stand firm. Continue to live in a way that's pleasing to God because you will one day receive a reward for that. Endure, run strong, finish the race, run for the finish line. Don't give up. There's coming a day when you'll be rewarded. The other thing it ought to produce in us is mercy. Mercy. 
I don't know about you, but I think we see it played out in the news these days. My tendency, I suspect the universal human tendency is when I've been wronged or when someone I know and love has been wronged or when someone I identify with has been, been wronged, my instinct is to pick up a brick, to pick up a torch, to pick up a sign and, 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 and to make sure other people feel the pain that I or my loved one am feeling in this moment. But the resurrection of the dead and and the eternal judgments ought to remind me that God can and will judge far more convincingly than I ever could. There's nothing that I can do in this life that will be more vindictive, if you will, than God's final judgment. And so instead of trying to make people feel my pain now, instead of trying to get back at them, maybe I should just show mercy. Wait for the day when God will judge. And instead live in a way that demonstrates who Jesus is. The final judgments ought to produce in us mercy. And then the last thing I want to suggest that these, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment, it ought to produce in us a passion, an urgency for an evangelism. It ought to produce in me a desire to be sharing my faith because there's coming a day when those who don't know Jesus Christ will stand before the great right throne and God will say to them, depart from me, you never knew me. Your destination is the lake of fire. It wasn't prepared for you. It was made for those heavenly beings that knew God's glory and chose to rebel. But because you rejected me, that's where you will spend eternity with a resurrected body that cannot be destroyed, but experiences every ounce of torment that a lake of fire produces. Is that what we would wish for our spouse, for our parent, for our children? Then why would we wish it for anybody? These doctrines, that everybody will receive a new body body that, that cannot be destroyed, and that everybody will be judged ought to light a fire under us to tell as many people as we can about Jesus in every way that we can. It ought to encourage us to invite people to church. It ought to encourage us to be bold about our faith. What are they going to do to you? Is it worth potentially leading them to be saved from an eternity separated from Jesus? As we've been walking through this series, we've said that the goal of understanding the fundamentals of the Christian faith isn't about knowing more. We don't take a final exam at the Bema seat or at the great white throne. It's not about how much we know. It's about, am I living my life in a way that's pleasing to Jesus Christ? My hope and my prayer for you, although we've covered just a little bit of the basics and just a little bit on the top, my hope is that you'll continue growing in your faith And that your goal as you grow would be to turn around and help others grow in their faith. 
Beulah, our desire needs to be to help people to meet Jesus and grow in Jesus. But we don't do that if we lose sight of the basics. And so let's continue to build on this foundation and continue to trust God to carry us forward to maturity. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for both the encouragement and the hope and also the sobering reminder that these two doctrines offer us. Praise God that one day those who died in Christ will be resurrected and all who've submitted their lives to Jesus Christ will receive new bodies. Praise God on this side of life, on this side of eternity. And Father, thank you also for the sobering reminder that we have a job to do that we need to be telling people about the Jesus who died to save them because all of us will one day stand before a judgment seat. Father, would you make us about that? Would you make me about that? Would you give me boldness and encouragement and hope to tell others about the one who loves them and has died for them so that they can be sure what their eternity will look like? We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.